Hi, you're listening to History of Gore. I'm writer and researcher James Hoare. From the team behind History of War and all their history magazines, History of Gore reveals the weird and gruesome side of the past, from burial rites and early medicine to chemical weapons and the occult. If you enjoyed this podcast, or even if you hate it, please seek out All About History on Twitter, Facebook, and or Instagram, and let us know what you think. To me, history is more than a record. It's not a fixed point in time sealed in wax and kept behind glass. History is memory, and memory is a living thing that ebbs and flows as consequences make themselves known, changing ideologies transfer new meanings, and trauma's deep scars are reopened. History is also filled with figures who have worn the burnished armour of both hero and villain. Vlad Tepes, Prince of Valachia, is remembered in the Orthodox Christian world as a fierce warlord who held firm against the advancing Ottoman Empire, but he's monstered in the West as Vlad the Impaler, a sadist whose foul deeds are immortalised by his victims, the Transylvanian Saxons, in woodcuts that spread across Central Europe. However, it took 19th century writer Bram Stoker to literally demonise Vlad Tepes in the form of Dracula. Now this story is something else entirely. This is Seshlav of Polosk, a medieval werewolf prince of the Kievan Rus, a man whose transformation into Prince of Darkness occurred within a generation of his passing. As with episode one, we're going to start off talking about sources. Because if you don't know what my sources are, why should you even bother listening to me, right? Underpinning the bulk of this narrative is the primary chronicle. Sometimes referred to by mischievous nationalist trollbots as the Russian primary chronicle, it was compiled by a monk named Nestor in 1113. So while much of it is pure fantasy, it's at least authentic fantasy, a reflection of the beliefs, superstitions, fears and religious character of 11th century Kiev. More importantly, Nestor was a contemporary of Seshlov, and the events of Seshlov's life were within his living memory. So the Primary Chronicle is not only my primary source, it is a primary source. The rest of the story comes alive for a 12th century epic called The Tale of Igor's Campaign, which is a masterpiece of East Slavic literature and details a frontier prince's war against the nomadic Cumans. It contains a lot of flavour about earlier events leading up to Igor's story, that reflect the developing mythology and memory 100 years after Seshlav's death. My final source is a 1949 essay collected in Roman Jacobson's Russian Epic Studies, which was first published by the American Folklore Society and can be read in its entirety on archive.org. Co-written by Jacobson and Mark Steftel, it looks at eight recorded variants of the Volk Seslovich myth, a heroic werewolf prince likely inspired by Seshlav. So to recap, trying to understand Seshlov is like wearing one of those frames you get at the opticians, where the different lenses get added and then some get taken away, some making things clearer and some making things a lot fuzzier. But hopefully at the end of it all, we get a really clear picture. Kievan Rus was an anarchic federation of principalities, city-states and tribal groupings that covered much of what is now European Russia, Belarus and Ukraine. It had started coming together as one power block under Prince Oleg in the early 10th century. Oleg began to seize power from his neighbours and declared Kiev its capital. It took an outsider to build a nation. Oleg wasn't a Slav. Like his brother Rurik, from whom the dynasty gets its name, they were Varangians. 
Norsemen or Vikings, who sailed down the rivers from the Baltic to the Black Sea, serving as freebooters and mercenaries. On the edge of the Byzantine Empire, where trade routes crisscrossed east to west and north to south, they settled and prospered. Oleg and Rurik were Norse pagans. Valkyries and Valhalla, Runes and Ragnarok, all that stuff. But Rurik's great-grandson, Seshlav's great-grandfather, Vladimir the Great, converted to Christianity in 988, awed by the beauty of Byzantium's churches and liturgy. This risks becoming an epic tangent. If Vladimir the Great's grandmother was Olga of Kiev, who I've written about in the past and will probably discuss here at some point too, give her a Google. She's a Game of Thrones level boss bitch. The Principality of Polosk fit largely within the borders of what is now Belarus and was based around the ancient city of the same name. Seshlov's grandfather had been dispatched there to rule as his mother's hometown, and that was the custom. And under Seshlov's father, Polosk had become embroiled in a bitter dynastic conflict with its southern neighbour, Kiev, and its northern neighbour, Novgorod. I'm not going to name all of these guys because, honestly, it will make it super difficult to follow and it will test the limits of my pronunciation. But Seshlov's grandfather died young, aged only 23, and his own father, Vladimir the Great, is still very much alive. Now, under the law code of the Kievan Rus, this meant that his line was disinherited and Vladimir's brothers moved up the succession instead. Seshlov's dad was declared an Izgoy, a social outcast, and he had no formal status. Dad, therefore, grew up knowing that had his own father lived another 14 years, the title of Grand Prince of Kiev would have been passed to him, and then when he died, Seshlav would have become Grand Prince of Kiev. He promptly set about feuding with his uncle, Yaroslav the Wise, Grand Prince of Novgorod, who had succeeded Vladimir the Great and added Kiev to his titles in 1019. Dad was beaten, humiliated, and forced to cede territory to his uncle, but kept the fight going out of sheer bloody-mindedness. Don't get too distracted by this the wise business, because Yaroslav wasn't a wizard. He was more lawful neutral than lawful good, and his wisdom was really about seeing off threats to his dominance and ensuring stability in Kievan Rus. Seshlav's dad wasn't Yaroslav's only challenger either, and in order to take the throne of Kiev, he had most likely ordered the murder of three of his brothers, waged war against a half-brother and his army of Polish muscle, and stuffed another young brother in prison for pretty much his entire adult life. Another brother also attempted an invasion of Kiev while Yaroslav was elsewhere. Rebuffed by the citizens of Kiev, he limped back to his border principality and behaved himself. I'm going to break my rule on not loading you up with too many Slavic names and tell you the half-brother's name, because he sounds like a character from a Thor sequel. Severe Polk, the Accursed. Seshlav was born in the 1030s, and according to the primary chronicle, he was conceived by sorcery. He was said to have been born with a call, which is a translucent membrane stretched across his head. Incredibly rare and totally harmless. Today, this is usually removed by the midwife, but across the medieval world, it was seen as an omen. His mother was advised to bind the call to the infant, and on most accounts, this is for good fortune, but in another, it's so that he would be quote-unquote merciless in shedding blood. Now, typically in Russian folklore, a call was seen as lucky, and there are accounts of them being rolled up and worn around the neck as macabre amulets well into the 18th century. So looking back, the propensity for bloodshed seems like a fairly odd diagnosis. The answers may be lurking elsewhere in Eastern Europe. In Polish and Balkan folklore, the call was seen as the proof the child will develop supernatural powers. In Serbia, one born with a call was said to become the Vukdlak, 
a werewolf. Although interestingly, the same word is used for vampire, which is fitting because in neighbouring Romania, someone born with a core became Strugoi, a vampire. Some translations of the primary chronicle interpret the core as a birthmark because the language is a bit ambiguous. But in Russian folklore, someone with a port wine stained red birthmark, also known as a mark of Cain, was said to become a werewolf. So ultimately, it makes no difference. What this tells us, though, is that these various supernatural beasties weren't clearly defined in the medieval imagination. Though a century and a half of Gothic horror has now schooled us in these clearly defined tropes and their clearly defined skill sets, such as the uncontrollable werewolf curse, the lusty predatory vampire, and the sorcerer in search of forbidden knowledge, that's not really how folklore works. Indeed, when we re retrofit our contemporary understanding of witches and werewolves to old stories, or try and give everything a D&D monster manual definition, we risk looking past some of the things that made these stories special in the first place. Also, it's important to remember that these stories are depicting the quote-unquote real Seshlav, and his fictional counterpart has an even more extreme magical birth. Volker Seshlavich, Volk, coming from the root word for sorcerer, was born from the union of a pagan priestess and a fiery serpent. Destined for greatness and for war, as a child he demands to be swaddled in golden armour and learns from his mother the art of shapeshifting. The first wisdom he was taught, to a bright falcon to turn, the second wisdom he acquired, into a grey wolf to turn. In another variant of the Volker Seslovich story, he's described as a prince and his mother a princess further binding Seshlav to his myth. Seshlav succeeded his father as the Prince of Polosk in 1044, and he inherited with it the old man's status of Izgoy, a disinherited social pariah. Seshlav's great-uncle, Yaroslav the Wise, passed away in 1054, leaving his eldest son, Izyaslav, as the Grand Prince of Kiev, and setting up Izyaslav's two younger brothers with power bases of their own. He warned the trio to behave themselves, as they faced enemies within and without. This is very much Seshlav's saga, so we've not really dwelt too heavily on Yaroslav's character, but here at least is a snapshot of the wisdom that he's remembered for. For 16 years before Yaroslav took the throne of Kiev, there was no overall ruler of the Kievan Rus, and when he did take power, as I said earlier, he pretty much had to murder, defeat, or imprison his own brothers in order to safeguard his regime. So by sharing power among his three sons, Yaroslav returned Kiev to a system of rotational rule. In effect, all three would then serve as Grand Prince of Kiev in time, which he hoped would keep the peace between them and stop bitter recent history from repeating itself. Unfortunately, he hadn't really considered how this new balance of power would be received in Polosk. This was suddenly a very dangerous environment for Seshlav. He was now the eldest of the Rurik dynasty, and the only prince of Rus not descended from Yaroslav the Wise. He had a power base, he had land, he had wealth, and he had men, and he was immensely popular in his territory, but he was an embarrassment to his family. And in lieu of status, he built a great cathedral to rival those of Novgorod and Kiev, and he went to war. Nestor's primary chronicle records a growing litany of ill omens. The river Volkov flowed backwards for five days. A blood-red star appeared in the sky. The sun grew weak and listless like the moon, and an horrified fisherman pulled a discarded child from the water, discovering the orphan to be a grotesquely deformed monstrosity with its gentles where its face should be. They tossed it back. It goes without saying, of course, that strikingly similar omens followed the life of the legendary Volkar Saslovich, 
In 1065, Seshlar attacked Vizgov, and in 1066, he took Novgorod, the second city of the Kievan Rus. The great bells of St. Sophia's Cathedral were removed and melted down. The next year, Seshlov conquered the city of Navarudak. The tale of Igor's campaign rationalizes Seshlov's victories, his bloodlust and the apparent mobility of his army in purely supernatural terms, describing him as quote-unquote, like a fierce beast, having enveloped himself in a blue mist and loped like a wolf. The tale of Igor's campaign goes on. Seshlov the prince judged men. As prince he ruled towns, but at night he prowled in the guise of a wolf. Poetically, it continues, showing Seslav as a reaper in a wheat field of human lives. On the great river Namiga, the spread sheaves are heads, the flails that thresh are of steel, lives are laid out on the threshing floor, souls are winnowed from bodies, Namiga's gory banks are not sowed goodly, they're sown with the bones of Russia's sons. In the winter of 1067, the three brothers raised a great army to march on Polosk. The town of Minsk, then small but fiercely loyal to its liege lord, barred its gates to them and the brothers put it to the sword, selling the women and children into slavery. In March, Seshlov met his cousins on the snow-covered battlefield. He was defeated and he fled. On 10th of July, desperate to end the insurgency, the brothers swore an oath of safe conduct if Seshlov would join them at their camp for peace talks. This oath was sealed by bringing a crucifix to their lips. They didn't keep their word. Seshlav, along with his two sons, were taken captive and thrown into prison in Kiev. The unique role of cross-kissing to Kievan Rus cannot be overstated. It represented a pact beyond legally binding, as God's law rather than man's law was being invoked. Cross-kissing sealed treaties between Byzantium and Kiev, reinforcing its role as a supranational oath, one beyond the secular powers of princes and principalities, emperors and empires. Vladimir Monomak, who ruled as Grand Prince of Kiev a decade after Seshlov's death, wrote one of the founding documents of the Russian political system, Instruction, in which he warns his children, if you have to kiss the cross to your brethren or to someone else, check your heart carefully and only make a treaty that you can keep. And after having kissed the cross, keep it, so as not to condemn your soul by breaking your oath. Seshlov, then, had no reason to suspect betrayal. In 1068, a greater threat than a cousin with an axe to grind emerged. The Cumans invaded. A Turkic people with a reputation as fierce warriors, they rode out in force from the Eurasian steppe, and in time would threaten the borders of Hungary and Byzantium too. The primary chronicle sees this in existential terms, and Nestor writes, God in his wrath causes foreigners to attack a nation, and then when its inhabitants are thus crushed by the invaders, they remember God. Strife is incited by the devil, for God wishes men not evil but good, while the devil takes delight in cruel murder and bloodshed, and therefore incites quarrels, envy, domestic strife and slander. When any nation has sinned, God punishes them by death or famine or barbarian incursion, by drought or plague of caterpillars, which is weirdly precise, isn't it? And other chastisements, until we repent of our sins and live according to God's commandment. Isyaslav and his brother Shevalod had fled the Kuman advance to Kiev, while the third brother, Siatoslav, 
retreated to Cernogorov in the near north, where to his credit he led the town in a daring defence against nomadic marauders. Feeling the pressure from the east, in September 1068, the Vec, the ruling council of Kiev, demanded that Izyaslav issue them with arms and horses. Now, Izyaslav wasn't entirely popular, so he had pretty good reason not to arm the city folk, but when he refused, a mob formed. Half went to confront the Grand Prince at his palace, and the other half went to the city jail to release their friends imprisoned by the tyrant. Izyaslav was pretty slow to the threat, but the blood of some of his retainers began to run cold. Remembering Seshlav in his cell, they urged the Grand Prince to dispatch assassins to finish off the challenger, but it was too late. Izyaslav and Shevalod were driven from Kiev, and Seshlav was carried to the palace to rule. The interesting thing about the primary chronicle in contrast to later folklore is that despite all the talk of omens and divine punishment, it's not Seshlav that inspires God's wrath. It's caused by Izyaslav breaking his oath. Nestor observes as only a monk can, God demonstrated the power of the cross as an admonition to the land of Rus that its people should not violate the true cross after sealing their oaths by kissing it. Seshlav remained in Kiev for seven months before the winter lifted sufficiently for Izyaslav to move against him. The former Grand Prince had been licking his wounds in Poland and had gained the support of the Polish Duke, Boleslav the Generous, or Boleslav the Brave, or Boleslav the Cruel, because if we're learning anything here, it's that reputation is a bit of a roller coaster. Spooked by the size of Izyaslav's Polish army, Seshlav fled Kiev under cover of darkness, and the embarrassed Vex sent desperate messages to Shevalod and Syatoslav, imploring them to prevent the Grand Prince from storming Kiev for bloody revenge. Playing on their aspirations to rule, the Vec wrote, Return to your father's city. If you refuse to return, then we have no alternative but to burn our city and depart to Greece. Syatoslav replied, We shall communicate with our brother. If he marches upon you with the Poles to destroy you, we shall fight against him and not allow him to destroy our father's city. If his intentions are peaceful, then he shall approach with a small troop. With two of the three brothers as their guarantors, Kiev was mollified and Izyaslav returned to his throne. His bloodlust was entirely proportional, intentions entirely peaceful. All those directly involved in releasing Seshlav were slaughtered, a further 70 were blinded, and countless others were executed without trial. The order of events in the Volka Seslovich stories are a bit out of whack, so I've gone through the bulk of the historical Seshlav's account before doubling back, so I hope you're keeping up. Perhaps as a folk memory of Seshlav's elevation by the mob against an unpopular ruler, Volka Seslovich is given a heroic impetus for the defense of Kiev. In order to save it from a vaguely defined lord or invader who boasts of letting God's churches go up in smoke, and lay waste to the venerated monasteries. Here, Volker's nemesis is described as a Turkish or Indian Tsar, which on the surface fits with the Kuman threat rather than the threat of Izyaslav. But for the Kievan Rus, Poles, Roman Catholics, tethered to the orbit of Rome and Central Europe, were heretical other, just as threatening as the Turkic hordes. Rather than captured and freed by a coup d'etat, Volker Seslovich transforms into a falcon and lands on the windowsill of the palace in Kiev, from where he is able to overhear the Tsar's plan. Transforming into a stoat, he then frees his friends from the dungeons and leads them on a rampage through the palace, knocking a door from its hinges with sorcerer's strength and laying Tsar low. Enthroning himself as Tsar, he then lives happily ever after. 
It's all pretty ridiculous, but it's striking how many actual events have been garbled and remixed as heroic myth. You could almost imagine an elderly Seshlav telling this story to a skeptical grandchild, sort of like Princess Bride. That's not a spoiler, by the way. The film came out in 1987, so you've had over 30 years to see it. According to the Primary Chronicle, Izislav sent the Polish army out foraging and then had them all killed in small groups. If that's true, we can perhaps assume that Boleslav of Poland was promised a stake in Kievan Rus for his role in returning Izislav to the throne. If it's not true, and it does seem needlessly antagonistic behaviour towards a powerful near neighbour, we can assume that it's a reflection of Izislav's gruesome reputation instead. Another interesting side point is why did his brothers not move against Seshlav themselves, especially as Sviatoslav had proven his martial chops in the ongoing war against the Kuman? In their message to the Vek, it's clear that between them, Shevolod and Sviatoslav felt they had the strength of numbers to turn back Izislav's army. And with that in mind, it also seems peculiar that Izislav went to Poland for muscle and not his Rurikid kin. Personally, I think the crucial detail is that only by acting together did Shevolod and Sviatoslav judge themselves in with a fighting chance of turning back Izislav's hired hands. When he was driven from Kiev, the balance of power between the three brothers was thrown totally off course. Why should Shevelon Sviatoslav have shed blood to return to throne the brother who had lost it with absolutely nothing to the con contribute to the fight himself? Why should either Shevelon or Sviatoslav assist the other in taking Kiev and then go home with a wooden spoon for participation? Why would Shevelon or Sviatoslav risk going it alone and have Seshlav tear bloody chunks out of their armies so that the brother who sat it out could waltz by later and overthrow the weary victor? Seshlav was driven from Polosk, and one of Izislav's sons was set up in his old fiefdom. In 1071, the Cumans intensified their raids in the east, and in the west, Seshlav returned to force his rival from Polosk and retake the city. As Seshlav drops from the primary chronicle to lick his wounds, Nestor recounts a litany of false prophets, sorcerers, and assorted devilry before in Kievan Rus. In 1076, it was Shevolod's turn to rule as Grand Prince of Kiev, and he discovered Izislav was no longer so willing to follow their late father's wishes, kicking off a new period of open warfare between siblings and cousins, interrupted only by fresh raids from the Kuman and other marauding heathens in the east. Seshlav died on Good Friday 1101 outliving both Izyuslav and Shevolod, who had passed their feuding on to the next generation. The year of Seshlav's death and burial in the Cathedral of Holy Wisdom in Polosk, the wheel kept turning. Izyuslav's son, the new Grand Prince of Kiev, defeated his own nephew in battle and had him brought to Kiev in chains. While the primary chronicle was relatively sympathetic to Seshlav, by the time of the tale of Igor's campaigns a century later, the mood had shifted radically. The anti-hero Seshlov, the disinherited princeling fighting to right or wrong, has been replaced by the villain Seshlov, the werewolf, whose unchecked ambitions and fierce bloodlust led Kievan Rus to ruin. For a largely rural population, wolves represented a threat to livestock, livelihood and life. Their predilections would determine whether or not a household survived the winter. The long-term effects of princely warfare and dynastic bad blood on Kievan Rus were more keenly felt by them. Effectively, the wolf had hit every household, and winter was showing no sign of ending. The tale of Igor's campaign damns everyone involved in leaving Kiev vulnerable to invasion. Yaroslav and all the descendants of Seshlav 
The time has come to lower your banners, to sheath your dented swords, for you have already departed from the ancestral glory. With your feuds you started to draw the pagans onto the Russian land, onto the livelihood of Seshlav. Indeed, because of these quarrels, violence came from the Kuman land. What then does the shape-shifting prince of folklore, Volker Seslovich, tell us about the historical Seshlav Palace? Born of a fiery serpent and a pagan sorceress, yet a stalwart defender of God's churches and the faithful people of Kiev, he's almost a heroic misunderstood monster long before Gothic fiction formally birthed such a thing in the 19th century. Interestingly though, the primary chronicle and folklore, both jar with Tale of Igor's campaign by presenting Seshlov and his fairy tale counterpart as sympathetic, their worldviews are diametrically opposite. The primary chronicle is unequivocal in its condemnation of sorcerers as agents of the devil, and Nesta tells of magicians and false prophets preying on the credulous and then receiving their comeuppance. Of particular interest in the primary chronicle is an account of a Christian man from, who rides out from Novgorod to consult with a shaman from one of the Finnic tribes who lived around what is now Estonia. When the shaman is unable to consult his gods for prophecy, in the presence of the Russians' crucifix, the man of Novgorod discovers to his horror that the tribe's gods are demons and the tribe are destined for the abyss. Now Volker Seslovich, if you remember, was born of a pagan and he learned from her the powers of transforming into wolves, birds and other sundry animals. Russian folklore gives us a dizzying array of terms to different magic user, but Volker was specifically a pagan sorcerer or healer. Now in the primary chronicle, they appear initially as allies of the princes of Rus, and of the arrival of Christianity under Vladimir the Great, are reduced to straw men who pop up only for Simon Magus-style tests of faith with the true believers. Unfortunately, we just don't know for certain what Volker believed or believed to be capable of by the pagan Rus, as those accounts are, like the accounts in the primary chronicle, the records of later Christian writers. They were related to the tradition of the pagan Norse Vola, a female shaman or seer, and in understanding the Vola, later antiquaries often looked to the beliefs of the Sami, indigenous people who live in the far north of Scandinavia and Russia. The Sami shamanic tradition was extinguished by creeping Christianization in the 17th century, but its survival well into the early modern world leaves us with plentiful descriptions of their practice and traditions. Among the beliefs attributed to their shamans is of course shape-shifting. In my opinion, Seshlav of Palos can be seen through multiple lenses, the historical, the Christian, the folkloric, and the allegorical in our search for truth. I see a figure wronged by fortune, ostracized from birth, and yet against impossible odds, built Palosk into a regional powerhouse and struck a blow against his rivals. These stories tell us he was a superb insurgent commander who, like a wolf, was able to mobilise quickly, strike suddenly, and probably do so under the cover of darkness. His defeat on the battlefield and his reluctance to face the Poles, along with his looting rather than occupation of Novgorod, a great city that was surely a great prize to be kept, suggest he was fighting with limited forces unsuited to siege or pitched battle. Reading his great victories and changes in fortune, alongside his crushing defeats and disappearances, he has been cast as a supernatural other, destined from birth to do things we cannot equal for reasons we cannot fathom. Seshlov the Sorcerer and Volker Seslovich 
become a reaction to the shadow his deeds cast through history, an enduring memory of an era of great instability, war, betrayal, and bloodshed. For more weird and wonderful history, albeit with less profanity and deformed, abandoned fish babies, check out the latest issues of History of War and All About History magazines. They're available in all good news agents and supermarkets in the UK and in Barnes & Noble in the US. To find out more, visit historyanswers.co.uk or shop for single issues and subscriptions at myfavouritemagazines.co.uk. And that's the UK spelling of favourite with an O and U. Sorry, America. <laughs>